Al started talking about missions last time. And what we're going to do tonight is building a missions team to expand coverage. Now, what we're talking about is Jerusalem meets Rome and finds Babylon, a study in church purity. We haven't even got to Jerusalem yet. So in, in your studies, if you're looking at it, say, wait a minute, when did Jerusalem meet Rome? Oh, we got to get there yet. But we haven't left Jerusalem very much. Right now, we're, we're leaving Jerusalem and we're going to Samaria. We're getting into Judea. We're into Syria. And we've been over in Cyprus. We've been at Cyrene. We've been over in Phoenicia, which is on the coastlands there of, of Israel. And likely there are several people who've been to Babylon and been preaching Jesus in Babylon. But we haven't got to Rome yet. We're on our way. But once we get to Rome, uh, the church is now going to be looking at the Roman culture and the Greek culture, how to face that, and ultimately how the uh, church itself surrendered itself to bishops rather than the bishops being surrendered to Christ. Everybody follow where I'm coming from? And that's what's going to lead Jerusalem to meet Babylon. So that's, that's where we're, we're going to work. Right? But for right now, let's talk about creating a missionary and creating the need for one. All right? Are missionaries born, made, or called? Yeah, let's take a look at this. Witnessing is the responsibility of every believer. How many knew that? Witnessing. Now, it doesn't mean that, uh, that evangelism is what you get done every time. When you are witnessing, you are telling what you know about Christ. You're telling about what you know about your relationship to Christ. No one can doubt your witness. It's your personal witness. You, you follow what I'm saying? And your personal witness doesn't have to sound like anybody else's. As a matter of fact, there are so many people with so many backgrounds Every one of us are going to have a little bit different story of how we came to know Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ did, how that changed us. We're all going to have a little bit different story on that. But we're all going to have one common thing. It was Jesus who saved us. And the Jesus we're talking about is the one who is the Son of God. He was anointed the Christ, and he was, ra- he, he was crucified for our sins and was raised again the third day. That's the Jesus we're talking about, and it's the same Jesus for every one of us. If you have a different Jesus, then uh, let us tell you the gospel so that you know who Jesus really is, and you can get part, uh, be a part of that. But, so once you have received Jesus Christ, then you are a witness. You're simply telling what you know is true. You're telling what the Holy Spirit taught you. If the Holy Spirit taught you that Jesus was crucified for your sins and raised again from the dead, then that's what you give a witness to. If the Holy Spirit's taught you those two things are true and that Jesus is coming again, then give witness to that. If Jesus has taught you, I remember one night I was uh, talking with a group of uh, motorcycle buddies, and uh, some of them were looking up and said, hey, are you one of those Preachers that believes about that, uh, you know, the, what's it called? The rupture? The, the, I said, you mean the rapture? Yeah, 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 the, the rapture. Is that what it is? I said, yeah. What's that mean anyway? I said, well, it's a snatching away. The snatching away? Then I realized, you know, you can't use Christianese anymore. I said, yeah, it's, it's when believers are going to be taken out of this world. He said, do you really believe that? Yeah, I really believe that. That you, you believe that people are going to be here one moment and gone the next. Yep. I said the Bible's description for that is in the twinkling of an eye. 
Does it really say that? Yeah. And then they started asking questions about, do you, do you believe like prophecy and that sort of stuff? Oh, yeah. And so I began to tell them some of the prophecies about Jesus being born, about prophecies about where he's going to be born, what time he's going to be born. And I said, it was 100% accurate, guys. So the question, and this is the one that Hal Lindsey started me on years ago, was if he told the truth so accurately about the first coming, why wouldn't he be telling the truth accurately about the second coming? He already fulfilled everything for the first coming. He's yet to fulfill the things for the second coming. And look at the things that are starting to stack up that look like what he said was going to happen when he's coming. Ooh, he said, that's spooky, man. I said, uh, not for me. Uh, you, do you find that spooky? I said, I, I find it kind of very encouraging. I said, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not one of you crazies. You know, I don't, I'm not one of you people that believe all that stuff. I said, well, it looks like to me that it does scare you, so I think maybe in part you do believe part of it. Well, I, I, yeah, that's what's scary about it. You're right. I, some of this could really be true. I said, yeah, yeah, some of it sure could. <laughs> so anyway, we're witnessing. That's all we're doing. We're just simply telling the thing. Now, Number two in our outline, evangelism, the hope for result for our witnessing. We're actually hoping that as we're speaking through this and as that somebody's going to show enough interest that we can say to them, hey, it's available for you. Right now, your Lord is calling you away from the judgment that's to come and into this. They said, uh, I was witnessing a guy one time, he said, now what do you mean by that save stuff? Save from what? I mean, not any trouble. I said, not right now. You, you, uh, you don't understand the trouble you are in. I said, you see, you have already been sentenced to death. You're just waiting for the execution of that. I'm waiting for my execution? Well, for God to execute what he said he's going to do. Right now, you have a chance at pardon, full chance at pardon, if you just take it. Wow, man, that's scary. Yeah, it's scary. Evangelism is the hope for result in our witnessing. Number three, we're to show no partiality towards any human, but instead witness to every human, regardless of class, gender, greatness, or lack thereof, or ethnicity, or and you name any other thing you want on there. We're non-partial people. We want to tell anybody who will listen, everybody who will listen. And once they start indicating that they're interested don't get so overenthusiastic that you dump the whole load on them at one time. Wait to see what they're receiving and not receiving. Even if you don't get to get the whole message of everything that one time, give them what you can. But don't try to overwhelm them with it, okay? However, there are some believers who are called to be a powerful carrier of the Word of God to win souls and plant churches with whom God gives a good measure of fruitful success. I know that we have run across a number of people here that that's the way it is. I think uh, Frank Suja was telling our Sunday school class the other day that uh, Mark Paul is one such person. Mark Paul loves to tell the gospel. He will tell it anywhere. He was talking about that uh, Mark and him and uh, Frank, Mark, and one other, and I don't remember who the other one was right now. Um, we're down here at 50 and 159. 
at that intersection. And Mark's got a 10-foot cross that he puts up. And then he starts uh, with his guitar and he starts singing or he starts with his PA system and starts preaching. Either way, it doesn't make any difference to Mark. He just goes in and does it. And people show an interest in it. Matter of fact, there was a guy here Sunday that had heard what uh, Mark was saying and Frank got to talking with him about the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed up here Sunday and said, I had no idea that someplace like this existed. I didn't know there was a message like this. This is really cool stuff. So um, that that happened. Now, they've got a way of doing it. Frank, Frank does the same thing. Frank Suge has got that same special kind of gift that people listen to him. He can talk to him quite boldly about things, and people will just listen to him. Uh, Jack Zura used to be exactly... Many of you may not even know who Jack Zura was, but Jack had the same thing. We, I'd go, uh, Jack could call me up at 4 in the morning and say, meet me at Burger King. What? Yeah, we're going to Burger King. Well, we're going to Burger King. Well, we're going to have breakfast. Is it even open that time? Well, we'll see. Oh, we might go to Burger King. We, I, who knows where we're going to go? But he would never go any place. I mean, wherever we're going to eat, whatever we're going to do, uh, a waiter would come and say, oh, how are you guys tonight? Hey, we're really great. What's your name, he'd say. Well, my name is so-and-so. And he'd say, hey, you know something? I've got something you need. I know you've got something I need, and I'm going to give you my order in just a minute here. But before I give you my order, can I ask you something? Do you have eternal life? Huh? And before that guy could take our water order down or our coffee order down, whatever it was, Jack's already telling him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that guy is, he's coming back each time, and he said, well, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Could you tell me a little bit more? That, that's not a normal practice with most of us. You understand what I'm saying? And Jack could lead so many people to Christ that way. Some people have a special gift that way. There are others who are missionary in, in, in uh, their, their viewpoint, um, and they wind up... Um, winning people to Christ and planting churches. Uh, when Steve and Stephanie, in uh, 1992, they came here, and in 93, they began to tell us about, it was, I think, August, September of 92, and by 93, they began to tell us what their vision was. They wanted to be able to lead a certain group of people to Christ, and uh, they felt that they had gifts that would allow them to have that sort of entry medicine was one such gift. So they wanted to take their medical gift uh, and, and heal people, but they wanted to go beyond the medical gift. They wanted to bring people to Christ. And that's what they started telling us in 1993. 1995, they left here to go to Bangladesh, and in 96, they were on the field and doing just exactly what they felt God had called them to do. Now, the reason Edgemont got behind him in the first place is that we understood God had called them to do that. That wasn't something that we felt they had just dreamed this up. No, God had called them to do it. And we watched as God used them to do just exactly what we're talking about here. So number five in your outline, in many ways, we could say that a missionary is all three, born, made, or called. Uh, it can be demonstrated that God does sovereignly choose people for his service. You know, if you look at the, well, matter of fact, let's just do that. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 1. 
the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. You've probably seen it. You, you know exactly what I'm going to be saying here, but I think it's always good to get to read it, right? Uh, the first uh, three verses describe who he was and what time he's going to minister and so forth. So I'm going to skip that and go to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Wow, guys. That's, that's pretty significant. You know, I don't know what, what kind of theology you have, but what are you like before he formed you? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So at what point in his life was Jeremiah called? <laughs> well, actually, he was born to this, wasn't he? So he's born to this. He doesn't know enough to know what a call is at that point. He's still in the womb of his mother. He's being sanctified and ordained already. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And then he goes on. He's got some more things he wants to say to him there. But my main point was to let you see that God uh, ordains people often and causes them to be born into that sort of a situation. Another one was John the Baptist. Uh, that, that's really clear uh, that John the Baptist is that. Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ is that. Well, let's go back over to our, our notes again, pick up the next thing we hear. Um, it can also be shown that through various experiences, God makes a missionary. Now, I don't know about Jonah and what he was like in the womb, we're not told anything about that. We're told when Jonah is an adult, what God's going to do with Jonah. And God, through various experiences, gets Jonah onto the mission field finally. He tells Jonah what he wants done. But Jonah runs. Jonah's trying to get away from God. Ultimately, he has to listen to what God has to say because God makes a captive audience of him. You know, if you, when you're in the belly of a large fish, you're sort of captive. And you've got to listen to him at that point. So uh, through those experiences, he became a missionary. You follow where I'm coming from? All right. So you'd be one of those that say God also makes a missionary, uh, a servant of the Lord, through various experiences. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah. 
Boy, that I'm glad you made it through that one. Wow. But it can also be demonstrated that missionaries have a divine call to service, sometimes even service to a specific location. Jonah, I'll use him as an illustration. He had a de- de- decided call, and that call was to a specific location. It was to Nineveh. It wasn't a general missionary call just going to all the world. No, it was to Nineveh. That's where he was supposed to be. Uh, it can also be shown that it um, uh, can be to a specific people. Saul, or Paul, his, his specific calling was to the Gentiles. He was going to go to the Jews, but his specific call was he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter was going to be the apostle to the Jews. All right? Uh, this latter calling is what separates him from those who simply want to serve God somewhere. Um, having been in several mission fields and talked with several different missionaries, there really wind up being two kinds of people who are on a mission field. There are some people who feel a, a real need to serve, and they really would just like to be in a foreign country someplace. I call that the Peace Corps type missionary. That's where you feel a need for, for somebody, but you don't have a call. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have a call for it. There's just something that moves you to be in, involved with a just cause or a compassionate call for people. And then there is another group that's on that field that decidedly have a call from God to do something. Now, I'm not diminishing what the, what the first one's like. I don't mean that at all. But oftentimes when they do get on that field, they question a lot of things because they came there voluntarily because they wanted to do something for the Lord. But once they got there, they didn't have the certainty that this is what they're supposed to be doing. But after they've been on the field for a while, they find it difficult to get away from the field. This is what they've done all their life. I've run into pastors who are just like that. They felt like they wanted to preach the Word of God, and maybe they have five or six sermons, and they'll, they'll preach the Word of God, and then after that, they're beginning to wonder, what am I doing here? You know, should I really be doing this? After they've done that for a number of years, they don't know how to get out of it. Am I making sense to you? They've seen it as a job, and that's their job. There is a grand difference between that and what a missionary is or what a called person is. So I saw Steve and Stephanie had a call from God to do something. They knew this is what God wanted to do. They, they serve with some people who don't know that. They, they really, well, I won't go any further than that. I'm just going to simply say that the missionary has a decided call. It can also be demonstrated, letter B, that God is always previous. God works in the heart of a people to prepare them to be ready to hear the message of the missionary. Sometimes God will do something like um, uh, there, maybe there's a, a, a disaster that comes. And that disaster was enough that caused people to say, what does God want? What's going on? And sometimes that was enough to prepare that people's heart for the word of God to come to them. Uh, Paul had done that uh, when he went to um, Athens. He went to Athens, remember, and he saw there there, there was a, an altar made to the unknown God. Well, 
the the story of that unknown God altar is a good one. Have you ever heard it? That's a fantastic story. That's that was about Athens was in a great um, famine, and they they were really starving, and and so they they set out to see which of the gods they had been they had offended. So they went to all the gods that they knew about, and they offered sacrifices, did all kinds of things, and nothing changed. They contacted a seer who was also a poet, and I think he was from Crete, if I remember right, contacted him. He came and he said, well, I see what the problem is. You haven't offered to the right God yet. So who's the right God? He said, I don't know if I could tell you. I don't know what his name is, but I can tell you this, that if you take a herd of sheep and you turn them loose and wherever they come to rest, build an altar there and sacrifice those sheep there. And, and that'll be the right God. Well, actually, that's the plan they followed. And when they got up there, they built this altar there. They sacrificed the sheep. And the famine stopped the next day. They had rain the next day and food start coming in and all kinds of peculiar things happened. So they called that altar the altar to the unknown God because they did not know who he was. Paul comes to Athens. He's walking past that one. He said, that's the one I want to tell you about. What? You know this one? Yes. God, who he doesn't dwell in temples, and he begins to tell us what, what God is like. That's in Acts chapter 17, if you, you read that sometime. That's what Paul took advantage of to tell people that. So, they had used, uh, God had used that experience to prepare the people in Athens for the message that Paul was going to bring to them years later. Everybody see where I'm at with that? So that's the kind of things that, that uh, happened there. And if you, if you need some of the others like that, um, uh, good books to read are by Don Richardson. It's Peace Child. Another one that's called Lords of the Earth. Uh, those are both good books that tell you about how God prepared hearts for people uh, to receive the message, all right? And um, number two, God even prepares hearts to make them want to hear the message of God's saving grace through the gospel. Letter C, when God selects someone to be a missionary, he does not seem to follow a certain profile. You know, you, there's not a way you can look at it and say, you know, the people that God usually chooses to be missionaries are, and you've got this profile set up for them. If you look at the ones that God's called to be a missionary, that's a puzzling thing because <laughs> you just don't find a whole lot of things with it. Let's just see what we can see what we can do. When Jesus chose the disciples to be his emissaries, they had to come from a variety of backgrounds and personalities. Most were not from the inner circle of the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, or other bodies of Jewish organized religion. You'd think that if there's going to be somebody that's going to be a missionary, they would probably be coming from one of those groups. But they didn't. Matter of fact, there was one who clearly came from the, uh, I'll call it the right-wing organization that wanted to do the um, Romans in. He is Simon the Zealot. Zealots was an actual political party that existed to get rid of the Romans. So Paul had, or Jesus had at least one of those fellows in his group. 
Don't see any from the Pharisees or Sadducees that were involved with him or any from the Herodians or any of that. None of the other political parties or religious groups. You just see him picking what looks to be um, uh, Jewish uh, Jewish men. Now, here's something that uh, a little bit of a tradition maybe that will help you understand something a little bit. When Jewish boys went to school, and they started when they were very, very young, by the time they're 13, they're supposed to be able to recite the Torah. And if the rabbi starts a verse, the kid's supposed to finish it. If the, if the rabbi ends a verse, the kid's supposed to finish it and tell him where it can be found and give him any other references that say the same thing. Man, that is a lot of knowledge about the Word of God. If a rabbi at 13 goes to your bar mitzvah, he sees what you've done, the rabbi then could look at you and say, I want you to follow me. And if you did, he got to go on to rabbinical school. If you were not chosen by a rabbi, you had to go and just do vocational work. I want you to consider none of the guys that Jesus called were in rabbinical school. That means they had been rejected already by the rabbis in the area. That doesn't mean we're disqualified people. It just simply means the rabbis didn't choose them, didn't see enough in them to bring them on. So they became fishermen, they became carpenters, they became whatever they were doing, tax collectors or whatever they were doing. You see where I'm coming from? So when Jesus comes around, He's coming around as a rabbi. And when he's saying to them, follow me, that means that a rabbi actually chose me to be his disciple. And if you answered yes to that call, you were going to live with that guy and do what that guy told you to do. You were going to take care of him. You were going to uh, make sure he always had water, if he needed water, whatever it was. And you were going to listen to his every instruction and do those every instructions. You see where we're coming from? So when Jesus is choosing those emissaries, he's choosing people who are going to follow him fully and completely. That's what he's doing. All right. So uh, it doesn't seem he had a certain profile for the people he had. When the Holy Spirit chose to use Stephen as his witness, it appears only that he was available and listening. Stephen was a, says in the Scriptures that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and he was strong in his witness and testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. When Stephen becomes his witness, Stephen's already listening He's already humbled himself. He's ready to do. So this much I think I can say. When God calls a person, it's going to be because God wants that person, that, it's because that person is interested in what God's doing. He's likely already ministering. He may not even realize he's ministering, but he's already ministering. All right? When the Holy Spirit chose to use Philip, it appears to be because he was available and humble enough to listen. You know, I'm just going to do something real quick to make sure that I have not. Nope, I hadn't. There you go. I didn't want my phone going off as we're talking about this. Um, He was familiar with the gospel well enough to articulate it, but the Holy Spirit gave him power to be persuasive. Now, Philip was simply doing, he was one of the deacons. 
He was doing what he was supposed to do. Stephen was one of the deacons. He was doing what he was called to do, and he was dedicated to the Holy Spirit, dedicated to God. And God chose him to carry a particular message. And so it was with Barnabas that we find him humble and not withholding anything that would keep the brethren alive and thriving. Barnabas, we read about, sold property and gave it all to the church, gave the prophets all to the church. He, he, he didn't want to hold anything back. He wanted to help the brothers and sisters out. Matter of fact, his name was going to be the son of consolation. That's what Barnabas means, the son of consolation, the son of help, encouragement. Um, he was working steadily, consistently, and regularly in Jerusalem for the believers there. We also find him in him a compassionate man who's going to believe the work of God on an individual like Saul. While the rest of the church was bothered by Saul, uh, even though Saul is preaching, he's preaching Jesus Christ and very strongly, he's having strong arguments with the Hellenists and, and the Jews in Jerusalem, it's only Barnabas that believes in the work of God for Saul that rescues Saul. Barnabas takes him in, in under his uh, wing, if you would, there, and Barnabas is, is giving Saul a, a life. Verse 5, while Saul was still breathing, verse 5, number point 5 in the outline, while Saul was still breathing threats of persecution and on his way to Damascus to legally arrest believers of the way, he encountered personally the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ where he received a distinct call. Now, granted, not many of us are going to have a Damascus call, but there may be several who have a call just like our brother did here. I remember uh, Randy Stufflebeam talking about a motorcycle accident was what called him to say, hey, son, it's time for you to get serious with uh, the, your service to the Lord. Any number of us probably could come up with some some illustration, they're not always life-threatening, but some illustration that helped you to know God wants to be engaged in this stuff. All right? So uh, going on further, Lord, though, he just received a distinct call. It was affirmed in Damascus through Ananias. It was affirmed again in Antioch. All these confirmations were by God himself and very directly. All right? When Saul returned from his Damascus experience, he was ready to be just as tenacious for the gospel as he had been against it. He, he must have encountered Jesus in the desert and was personally taught by him for three years. Would you look with me just for a moment at uh, Galatians chapter 1? I believe it's Galatians 1 that I want. Here's something that you don't read about in the book of Acts. When you're looking at Paul, um, uh, no, it is going to be. Uh, let's let's just uh, pick up here just for a moment. In. Um, Verse eleven of chapter one. Okay, let's just let's just start there a minute. But I'm, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I never received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, now notice what he says, who separated me from my mother's womb. So he had sanctified like John the Baptist and like Jeremiah and called me through his grace to reveal in his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. I saw none. Um, let me see. Let me look at a couple of things here. Yes, let's go uh, right here. He's telling us that three years and he went to Arabia. So sometime between the time he was called in Damascus, he left for three years to go to Arabia. And in the desert there, something took place. He was there for three years. Then he went back to Damascus, and that's when they led him over the, the side in the, the basket and so forth. Um, let's see if I can find one more that I'd like to share with you here. Let me see. No. No, I'll have to find it another place for you. But he was he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's the point I wanted to get at. It wasn't it wasn't uh, he didn't get his message by thinking and, and studying and um, coming up with the theology he did. He was taught his theology by the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. And let's see. Uh, he'd already been a Pharisee with strong studies in the Scriptures. He was familiar with the passages that spoke of the Messiah as well as Torah and God's righteousness by faith. So those are all things he was already familiar with, and God is going to now teach him how those things actually work out. But with Christ, he was able to make new applications of what he knew to the budding way that would become Christianity. God had prepared, birthed, and called, and was preparing a worldwide missionary of the gospel. His tenacious, somewhat ferocious arguments for Jesus as the Christ got him moved out of Jerusalem as far away as they knew they had a church, ultimately taking to Antioch in Syria. All right. Now, as conditions developed, God moved believers to spread the gospel according to his eternal plan. In other words, this is not an afterthought that God is having. Uh, God's not not saying, shucks, I planned for the Jews to come to know Christ. They didn't. I'm going to have to go to plan two. Plan two is I got to call some other people to see if I can get a, the Gentiles to believe me. The Jews aren't. Somebody got the Gentiles to believe me. And uh, no, this was the eternal gospel. It was the gospel that he had given to Abraham. He already told Abraham, in your seed, I will bless the nations. So let me, let me make sure we're understanding this. I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, are Gentiles, like myself, okay? We were not included in the new covenant. 
The new covenant of Jeremiah 3131 said, To the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Gentiles are not in either of those houses. You understand what I'm saying? Where you come in is that you are under the blessings of Abraham. You were supposed to be blessed. Now, you have received the same terms that are found in the new covenant. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been taken as far away from you, and the east is from the west. You have been given his spirit, just as he promised Jews would have, the Jew, or the two houses would have, if they trusted Jesus Christ. You know, if they, if they were in the new covenant, that's what they would get to have too. But you do not have the promises of being in Israel as your promised land. It wasn't your promised land. You're from a whole nother group of people who lived in another designated territory. You understand what I'm saying? The, the um, promise to Abraham was a particular land. And the, new co- the old covenant is about that land. The new covenant is about that land. That's not your land if you're not Israel. Your land may have been, uh, what, what do you think's your background? Are you, do you know what your background is? is it, are you Irish? Uh, Irish? Uh, all right. What, what, what do you, do you know what your background is? All right. How about that? Glenn, do you know what your background is? <laughs> my my point is simply this: all of us came. We haven't. Where where are you from? South Dakota. Wait a minute. That that's that's not an ethnic group. It is. That's a nation of its own. <laughs> now, my, my my point is simply to say this: all of us had a principality, a power, a nation that we were to be a part of. We've moved all over the world. We've learned to speak a language that helps us now communicate with each other. But we had a background. Israel's background is that particular land. He chose them for that land. He gave a covenant for that land and the new covenant for that land. Your covenant is with the Abrahamic promise. That's where you're from, okay? So you're in this because of that Abrahamic promise. Now, in order for you to occupy what God is going to give you in the future, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, you have to be born again, just like the new covenant said. In other words, you have to be a different kind of person. Uh, That's only by the Spirit of God. You have to have the Spirit of God's law in you. That you got from being born again. Uh, so if you see where I'm coming from, the, the terms of the new covenant, you're getting to live with because you have to. That's the only way you can occupy the promised land. Not, not Israel's promised land, your promised land. It's the only way you can occupy heaven, the new Jerusalem. That's how it's done. If everybody's, Well, that was a nice, confusing rabbit trail, though, wasn't it? Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> uh, prior to his ascension... Jesus had already told the assembled believers, mostly his disciples, that they were going to be witnesses for him and his resurrection after they received power from the Holy Spirit. This empowered them. Okay, that's Acts 1.8. Sometime prior to that, 
and I don't know what the date was, uh, what sometime that after his resurrection and before his ascension, sometime prior to that, he had already authorized them as his representatives to go into all the world to make disciples of every nation, teaching them to follow everything Jesus had taught the disciples and to baptize them into the Messianic community. This separated them from the rest of the world. Okay, so he said to them, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So that's, that's declaring his authority. Now, to those who were gathered right there, he authorized them to carry that gospel into all the world. You follow where I'm at? So now they are doing what he said to do by authority. Maybe a way to do that would be say, this, this is like a commissioning service for an ambassador to another country. Uh, the president said, you, well, I, I would like you to be my ambassador to Turkey. Would you be my ambassador to Turkey? If you agree to it, then uh, there is an official ceremony that authorizes you to be a mission, uh, the, the um, uh, ambassador to Turkey. But in order to do that, they have to also empower you to represent them in that country so that when you speak, you're speaking what the president would speak if he was in that, congr- that, that conversation. You know enough that you're not going to overcommit yourself to something that, that isn't what the president said to do. You're representing your country and the president of that country at that time. Everybody see where I'm coming from? So what you have now is the king of kings is saying to you, I want you to be my emissary to the rest of the world. You ready for this? Are you willing to accept that? Yes, I am. Then you've been authorized, and now in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you've been empowered to do the same thing. You can represent, get this, you can tell somebody, if you trust Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Are you kidding? What do you know about being saved? Only what the king of kings said. And you're carrying the peace terms of the king of kings, and he's saying to you, you can say to anybody that will listen to you, you have been forgiven by Almighty God for trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now note this, you're not forgiving them. You're representing the king who is forgiving them. But what an amazing statement it is that you, representing the king, could tell them they can have everlasting life. They can be forgiven. They will have everything that's between them and God washed away, wiped away, taken away as far as the east is from the west. That's your authority and power. That's an amazing thing if you ask me. All right. Anyway. Earlier in Jesus' pre-resurrection, I'm in letter C, early in his pre-resurrection ministry, he had told them not to go to the Gentiles, but to Israel only. This is the foundation for the message of the gospel, to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The new authorization, the one he gave them in uh, the letter B, that new authorization changed this guideline and made it broader in its application. Letter D. The believers in Jerusalem, where it all started, were continuing in Jerusalem and not moving out of the area. One noted exception to this would be the pilgrims who had come from distant lands and had trusted Jesus as the Messiah, who now would go back home. Look, they had come just as they were supposed to do, come to Pentecost, presented themselves, and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them and hundreds of them got saved. Well, the ones that got saved 
can't live in Jerusalem the whole time. They want to go back home. So when they went back home, and it says that they were all the way from what? Way back over in Cappadocia. So that's way back over this direction, all the way to Tarshish, which is Spain. So people were going back home. When they went back home, they gave the message they had heard in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So the gospel now was finding little places all throughout where it was being told. You see where we're at? All right. That's the one noted exception. The most of those who lived in Jerusalem were staying right there. Um, they would be carrying them, that message back to their home countries and their family and friends there. This growing group of followers of Jesus, or the way, had been given by the Lord several years to become an established church. Now it was time to move them into completing Jesus' words to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay. So, so far they've got the Jerusalem thing down. Now it's time to move and get that message to the rest. So he moved them. He sent persecution, he allowed persecution to come to them, and that persecution now sent them out of Jerusalem and carrying the gospel every place they went. You say, what has this got to do with us? Look, kids, if, if the things go down and it gets to the place where we can't meet anymore, we need to know our authority, our power. We need to know that we can share this good news with other people and that we need to. So we need to get started with that now so that we're not, it's not a, a new thing to us uh, when, when something comes down and we can't meet like we want to meet anymore. You're going to have to help people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ so you can have people to meet with. Maybe it'll be in your home. Maybe to be uh, in some local civic center. Uh, but we need to know how to do that. And this is the way, what we're trying to show you is the way Jesus uh, moves to get people to do it. So if you can see, he's moving them into a mission enterprise by a tragedy, by a hardship, by persecution. You follow where we're coming from? All right. Let's go to letter E then. He allowed the martyrdom of Stephen to be a catalyst to move the believers out into Judea and Samaria, then well into Syria. Tasting the success of killing Stephen as a tool against this anti-Torah new sect, persecution broke out and the believers left Jerusalem in big numbers to go back to the regions where they had family and friends. The gospel went many places after this. Many Bible scholars and church historians believe the gospel had made it to Babylon and perhaps much further. We have in the biblical account of its travels to Samaria through Philip and then on to the coastal towns of Israel and probably on to Ethiopia through the Ethiopian eunuch. Matter of fact, from what it looks like, history teaches us that whatever church started in Ethiopia was one very powerful church and that Ethiopia ultimately became a Christian kingdom that all the way up to the top, it became a Christian kingdom. We don't get to hear much about that because we don't do much. Unless you're studying African history, you're really not going to get to learn much about it. But there are many historians, especially Christian historians right now, and church historians, missionary historians, who are checking out all these things and finding out Africa already had a lot of missionary activity going on it from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom to kingdom. A lot of tribal stuff was going on, and many people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Everybody, everybody see where we're at on that? That's that's exciting. There's there's a, a number of those. I read several of them and thought this is this is really great. Um, we know it had gone to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Cyrene. We also know it was thriving in parts of Samaria, or Syria, I should say, such as Damascus and Antioch. Uh, And that our Lord chose to share with us how the gospel is going to go to Europe and the West. So we know that the gospel, matter of fact, when when, uh, I was in India, um, I was asked several times, are you going to go visit the the church that Thomas started? No, no. I won't be able to, uh, there's a church that Thomas started. Oh, yeah. Thomas started a church. It's on the, uh, close to the tip, the southern tip of India. Well, I was up here, and there was no way to go from there down to there without taking lots of flights and lots of things. But there is a church there that was started by Thomas. Yeah, the Thomas who was the doubting Thomas. So the gospel made it all the way over to there. That's pretty cool. I know that when um, Marco Polo was going to China, uh, he found several Christian uh, monasteries on the way to China, several of them along the way, along that path, Christian monasteries that had started from the, what was the old um, uh, Eastern Catholic Church, which became the Orthodox Church, uh, Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox, and ultimately Russian Orthodox, they had started monasteries long before Marco Polo. Marco Polo didn't want to talk about that because it, it would have sounded better if he was taking the gospel all those places. Well, anyway, that's just a little side thing there. All right, God's sovereign grace in missions, setting the field for the calling. Here's what God did to set the field for calling. Now, this is found in Acts chapter 11. So let's, let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11 in just a minute. Oh, yeah. I want you to see our God is the, the Father who sets things up for believers, for his son. He gets things ready all the time. Uh, so here's just, just something I want to show you. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. So in other words, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. So they're speaking to the Greek-speaking Jews. Why? Because they're also Greek speakers themselves. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Do you remember where Barnabas is from? Cyprus. So Barnabas, a Cyprian, is now on his way to Antioch because Cyprians have been <laughs> in Antioch speaking the word of God. Okay? When, he had, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. All right. So Paul gets, or I'm Barnabas gets Saul, and they, they go on this teaching campaign in this very thriving church that's in Antioch. And it's in Antioch, they're first called Christians. I, so, just so you know, that was a derisive term. That wasn't meant as some compliment. It just meant little, little Christs. These guys are just little Christs. They go around talking about Christ all the time. So it wasn't meant as some proud thing to say. And it it wasn't the Christians calling themselves Christians there. It was the other people who were calling them Christians. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, okay, which is going to become a practice of Barnabas and Saul from there on. And then when they split up, it's still going to be a practice of Saul. Uh, let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. It tells us, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. So what can I know? God's setting the field for the calling. He's putting the right people there. He's the Antioch church is thriving. There are prophets and teachers there. That's people who are committed to the word of God. Now, think that through just a minute. How do we, how do we get to be a, a group of people that are going to see missionaries coming from us? What's the setting? What's a, if I can say it this way, what's the soil got to be like? How fertile does it have to be in order for the sprouts of missionaries and evangelists and prophets and teachers to pop up? Okay, Here's, They were heavily engaged in ministry together. Listen to what it says about them. Now, there are certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up, and Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to them, by the way, do you see how cosmopolitan that just is? This, this is not just a normal group of people. These are from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, the word Niger means black. So Simeon was a black man. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Lucius is from Cyrene. Menean is likely from down in Jerusalem area. They're a co- what, what's known as a cosmopolitan group. They're mixed. There's a lot of different kinds of people here. That tells you a lot about what the, the city of Antioch was like as well as what the church of Antioch was like. This is a mixed multitude, and they're having a great time prophesying and teaching and, and doing all that. So what it goes on to tell us is, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, then the Holy Spirit said something. That tells me once again, what has that church got to be? What kind of ground and soils have to be that you have all these things popping up? It's got to be a place that's serious enough about the Lord that you're fasting, that you're praying, you're ministering to the Lord, you are um, uh, intending uh, to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things are going. So getting the team together. The team is chosen by God's sovereign grace, not simply by the desire of individual believers or a committee within the church. In other words, there wasn't a committee that got together and said, hey, why don't we have a strategy to send more people out around the world? Didn't come from that. It came from while they were all ministering together, two of those guys get the call of the Holy Spirit. 
Now let's, let's go on a little further. The Holy Spirit chose Barnabas and Saul for a task. No one was told what the task was to be, but the Holy Spirit says it was the work that God had called them to. Notice what it says. Uh, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, Paul had a pretty good idea what his call was because in the Damascus experience, God had said, I am going to send you to the nations. Okay? So Paul or Saul knows what his call is to be, but it hasn't happened yet. This has been years. You know it's at least three years because he was three years being taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many years after that he was in Tarsus and then in Antioch before the Holy Spirit said, now I'm ready to send you. That tells me something else. God prepares a missionary to go. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm, I think I'm supposed to go. Uh, anybody ever read the book Bruchko? Missionary book Bruchko? Ah, in, in that, Bruchko decided that Bruce something or other, I think his name was, decided that he, was, he needed to be a missionary. So he went to the mission field with no mission board, didn't know the language, didn't. That was costly. It, I mean, it, miraculously, God took care of him. That's just fine. But it took him a long time to really be effective at what he was doing. He watched a lot of wonderful things take place. That's not the usual way of God to call someone. You see what I'm saying? All right. All right. How was this communicated? How did the Holy Spirit call him? How did they know it was the Holy Spirit saying that? I don't know that. How did they know what that was, what God was calling them to do? It just says, set these two guys apart for what I called them to do. I, I don't know what that was. Uh, I can guess on some of it. Were Barnabas and Paul already aware what the task was? I think Paul was, or Saul was. I don't know about Barnabas. We're not told anything about Barnabas, okay? That doesn't mean that Barnabas didn't know it. That just means we're not told that, okay? Um, had they had been already been told? Was God simply working with their desire? Did their desire come from God? Note that the whole church was satisfied with the calling. No jealousy existed that anyone had been chosen over another. That's not what they were looking at at all. The whole church of the prophets and teachers fasted and prayed for these called brothers. The brothers laid hands on the, one, the called ones to indicate their unity with them and the Holy Spirit's plan. They knew that what was about to take place, let's look at it in verse 3, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So all of them knew this was the call of God. This wasn't just simply the, something that was said to Barnabas and Saul. This was all of them knew that's what it was, and all of them fasted and prayed, and all of them then laid hands on them and sent them away. <clears throat> the church is sending them away knowing they are doing the will of God, but, knowing not, but not knowing what is going to be the work that they have been called to do. They don't know. The church doesn't know what the, these the missionaries were called to do. They just know they have been called. Letter H, whatever else they knew or did not know, notice that it was the ministry of fasting, prayer, ministering to the Lord, and waiting on the Holy Spirit that was the work of these prophets and teachers. They were not having a committee meeting to strategize on a new plan for what the church ought to do. The church had already been authorized, empowered, and commissioned to do a specific task. 
As they were waiting for clear leading on the Lord, they were engaged in the good works that they had been foreordained to do. In other words, in order for us to be really good missionary folk, just do what he's told us to do. And do it with all the intensity you can. And as you're doing that with all intensity, wait on him to call you. He's got something he wants to do. But we don't want to just be mundane people who are not paying any attention to what the Lord is doing. We want to be about the business. Now, Ezra, we want to be people who do see. Is it our kids that grow up to be those prophets? Uh, Are prophets, pastors, teachers, uh, missionaries? Or is it somebody that's already here? I, I don't know. But I know we want to be the fertile soil that they can sprout up in. Everybody see where I'm coming from? So we want to be intensely given over to doing that. So let's see if we can make some applications. Uh, uh, Let's see, letter I. Because it was the evident leading and calling of the Holy Spirit, the the account contains no warnings from the rest of the team, no doubtful language, no uncertainties listed, no one saying, oh, boy, do you know where you're going? Are you thinking, are you sure this is what you want to do? It's none of that. They're, they're, they're just encouraging. They're saying, hey, listen, the Holy Spirit's ministered among us here and told us to go. Yahoo! We've been a, a selected group from somebody's going from our group. Yahoo! This is great news, man. All right? Application to the church now. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is its head. Number two, the prophets and teachers are only stewards of his church waiting for his clear leading. They are to be engaged in fasting, prayer, Ministry of the Word, listening for the Holy Spirit. The whole church is to be engaged in the good works Jesus intended for us. Ephesians 2.10 says um, that not only are you saved by grace through faith, because this is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It says that we have been foreordained to do the works that Jesus gave us to do. Titus 2.13 tells us that Jesus has called a peculiar people to himself. They are his special people to be engaged in good works that he's called us for. Acts 1.8 says that we are to be witnesses. Acts 2.42-48 describes what a body is like as it's meeting each other's needs, as it's learning the Word of God, as it's praying, as it's fasting. Then number five, we must be in unity together whether we all understand what God is wanting done or not. We have to at least have that unity. If somebody's calling Steve and Stephanie, I don't have to have that same notion about me. All I need to know is Steve and Stephanie being called. I want to support them in what, they're, what God has called them to do. All right? And number six, the Word of God is our instruction book. Jesus Christ is our master and the Holy Spirit our guide and comforter. So we're going to be giving ourselves over to the Word of God, to the Holy Spirit. That's what we're after. Well, Long lesson. Sorry about that. Thank you for your patience with me, here, guys. Um, thoughts, comments? We just want to be a church that's ready, guys. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know what the future is holding for any of us here, but I can know this. We still have a commission. We still have the authorization. We still have power to get those things done. All right.